It is Sunday, August 19th, and this is the Antifada. I am Sean KB, uh, broadcasting live from Leftist Best Studio, just steps from the industrial-ravaged Gowanus Canal in the heartland of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> just to troll you on your day off. I feel like I'm back at work. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Do I not go do to work enough for you? Do you want me to do it in that, that Jay J Master Mastodon guy's voice? What What's the guy you say? Jay like? Mascot. Oh, John <laughs> Ben. John Benjamin. The singer, H. John John the singer of Ma- Mastodon. Mastodon. Oh, oh, don't no. get me started on Mastodon. Right. That's gonna take me down a whole. Do you like what road. you see, America? Take two. <laughs> Look in the mirror, America. <laughs> Christ. Do you like what you see? It's the Communist Report <laughs> with Sean and Jamie <laughs> and AP Andy. Recording live from Leftist Best Studio. Recording live from uh, the People's Republic of uh, liber- newly liberated Leftist Best Studios. That's right. And uh, the- if, if left is best, maybe leftist is bestest? Maybe. And if, if anybody needs some equipment, come on down. It's all for the people. It's all for the people. This is how hip-hop was created in the 70s, in the blackout, when everybody stole all the equipment that they needed in order to do awesome fucking music. So listen, folks, come down, downtown Brooklyn, fire sale. Everything's for free. It's we, an anarchist free market. We did a banner drop. It's all good. It's all good in the hood, folks. That's it. And you know what? I think Sam will understand. Listen, he was going to get expropriated eventually anyways. I mean, at least we're announcing it beforehand, so when he yeah. shows up to work, you know, he'll, he'll know. Yeah, well, maybe now he'll realize that the uh, people on Fox News were right, and democratic socialism is, in fact, a slippery slope to uh, killing him and all, his fam- all of his family. Well, listen, expropriating Sam was democratic socialism because we voted unanimously to expropriate the studio today. Uh, yeah. What's more democratic than that? Yeah, I mean, people grow up with these concepts of uh, bourgeois representative democracy that are actually very far removed from uh, what direct democracy really means. That's right. Um, And also direct action. And we got so many goods, folks. Come on down to downtown Brooklyn. Direct action got you the goods. May a thousand podcasts bloom. (laughs) That'll be the real test of whether Sam listens to this show. Uh, You'll know real fast if he listens to this fucking show. (sighs) Jamie. I heard what you said on the podcast. You can't expropriate me. Can you see? Yeah, I mean, can't is a <laughs> relative term. Yeah, well, uh, maybe we might need a social revolution before you can expropriate your boss. But you know what? Till then, we'll just keep on podding. Yeah, and you know what? They see me podding, they hate me. He... He's one of the good ones. Like, he gets re-education, oh, hands dude, down. There's no way he's getting fucking within 100 feet of a gulag. No, he's... That, that man, will we will set him on his feet, set him straight. He will renounce his capitalist ways, and he will join us uh, in the great proletarian revolution as a comrade and friend, because his heart's in the right place. Sam, I'm putting the mini-amp back out of my bag. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. And well... He's, he's taking out his mini-14 to start sniping people. I feel like, oh, wow. I feel like Sam could get down with uh, some kind of, like, Soviet-style bureaucracy. Oh, fuck Like, he loves, he he lives for that shit. Yo, he would be, like, a one-man goss plan. Like, you talk about (laughs) socialist planning, Sam could sit there with some actuarial tables and just, like, work out an entire fucking socialist-planned economy. Comrade Cedar. That's it. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. All right, so I guess we are starting the show now. Um, All right, fine. This is... 
if anyone listening is confused, this is not actually the majority report. It is the Antifada. And, this is uh, the militant minority report. Hello and welcome to the Antifada. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are here with a very special guest today, Army Resistor Spencer Rapone. Yeah, glad to be here in the heart of the revolution in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah, thanks Fuck for yeah. coming. The revolution will have uh, gaudy luxury high-rises mm. popping up all over the place at all times, just like downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, luxury condos for all. Only they won't be condos. They'll be uh, commos. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Cut that out. <laughs> that. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I guys. I saw where you were going. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was It'll be combos, the snacks. Combos, yeah. Oh. I, you know, I really like the uh, the the pretzel ones with the cheddar inside. That's oh, wonderful. Or the pizza the ones are pretty good. The too. pizza ones are, the pepperoni pizza are vegan, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, or vegetarian, I, I should find, say. It's not real pepperoni. I find it unnerving. Combos? I don't like I don't like the taste of pepperoni in my combos. Oh, that's fair. Anyway. It's a great snack for the road, though, I must say. The best. So, uh, I would like to start out by asking you a question we ask all our guests here at the Antifada. Hey, babe, can I ask it this time? Sure. Uh, Go for it. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, Spencer, we'd like to start out by asking uh, our guest uh, something we ask everybody when they come on the Antifada. What is your favorite Clash song? Well, you know, it's tough because my favorite album is Sandinista, which is a bit of a a hot take in the punk rock community. Pretty but spicy, yeah. It is. It is pretty spicy. But I'd have to say it's uh, Washington Bullets solely because it is, I would say, the most anti-imperialist song, and it kind of was almost uh, a gateway into socialist politics for me at a young age. Dead ass. Hell yeah. That's we, awesome. We like to talk a lot here about um, the different ways that people can get radicalized through music and what music was important to us in our uh, political development so oh yeah well i gotta say i gotta throw out uh spanish bombs i know it's a little cliche but i think both andy and i are both kind of like more traditionalist clash fans yeah um and uh spanish bombs is amazing uh it's not like catchy uh, it's actually not even like the punkest of all punk songs, right? Like the stuff of the self-title is way more like three-chord, like classic punk right, rock. But right. you know, it is like a more like poppy song. But I love how it um, combines a really fun sort of like take on not fun, but interesting take on uh, the Spanish uh, Civil War of the 30s. But also kind of combines it too with the Sandinista Central American struggles that are happening at that time. I like a handful of songs on Sandinista a lot. And my least favorite song is uh, Lost in the Sh- Supermarket. Really? I actually oh, like that song a lot. I think that song is hot garbage. Why? Wow. So as Andy, with not a spicy strong, take. Oh, man. I think Lose This Skin is my favorite class song. And Supermarket is my least favorite. That is, I actually resent that because I really do like that song. Is it the? Is it because Strummer doesn't sing it? Or is it because you don't yeah. like the vulgar anti-consumerism of it? Yeah, I don't like people saying it's actually a situationist song. And oh, that's a thing? I just think oh, it's, that album is like too yeah. poppy. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm more of a Sex Pistols guy too, so I need it to be like really oh. snotty and okay, so, stupid. So you want like a manuf- you like ma- manufactured punk bands that are yeah. all like spectacle and no content. Yeah, and well, didn't Sid Vicious come out as like a chud they uh, were always oh no second um, song no, johnny rotten, johnny rotten. Been de- yeah. Sid, Sid, yeah. Sid vicious came out as a dead guy yeah right uh, <laughs> <laughs> but all of them never really had like an explicit social critique it was more just kind of this aesthetic variety well of holiday in yeah. the sun is a great song like a very interesting take on uh, the bipolarity of the cold war 
And then the second song is just an anti-abortion song. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think the Clash is pretty good and stuff, but um, I really must say lately I've really been jamming on uh, the the anthem uh, "Sky Rockets in Flight" <laughs> afternoon delight oh. by the uh, celebrated anarcho-syndicalist Brigadiers, the Starland Vocal Band. They were hardcore. They tried to actually uh, unionize uh, the Grand Ole Opry. Um, it was a militant struggle, and uh, they got, I think, two or three people out of 400 to vote for a uh, radical syndicalist union. Sex at 2 p.m. is every worker's right. Uh, Dead ass. Dead fucking ass. We can get a, can we, Jamie, can we get a famous hell yeah for that? Hell yeah. That's what's up. Hell yeah. So after that little sidebar, do you want to ask the actual question we always ask? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, here's a question we also, uh, another question we like to ask our guests here at the Antifada. Miraculously enough, it hasn't gotten old yet. And that question is, how pure is your hate today? My hate is the purest of hate flowing through my veins, from my heart down to my appendages. Pure hate. Hell yeah. Hell, Does there, is yeah. there even any hate like left for your organs? Or are you like in like constant like terminal Just sort of permanent pre-epistic hate on? Yes, exactly. Just pure unbridled hatred. My body's about to collapse from the amount of hate I have. I fucking love it. Well, we have EMTs on hand. Uh, so if you do need help, uh, medical help, we got you. But falling out from hate stroke uh, is a common occurrence on the show. So we always come prepared yep. with EMTs. So don't worry. We got your back. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they fixed up Matt Crispin really nice. So yeah, they got him uh, an Ativan drip to, make, you know, <laughs> balance uh, his hatred levels. They'll yeah. take care of you. <laughs> I must say, Sean and I both have a little bit of cat-related hate going on today. Oh, oh yeah, just today. We have, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a pretty tortured relationship, I would say. Well, with we've the, only uh, we've only mentioned I think seven times on the show that we want to drown our cats in the, the little in the bathtub with the fascist, the fascists of our home. Yeah constant race war so yesterday i woke up um i i I wasn't sleeping i was in that kind of liminal state between like after you wake up but you're too sleepy to get out of bed yet and uh which uh actually you should know uh lasts for about seven hours a day for it's usually a fugue state for me but i know you're coming from yeah Yeah, none of us are morning people so i was I was rudely roused out of that by um Oh my god, this is so traumatic. Our cat Frida Gatto <laughs> who <laughs> had gotten up on the dresser and was trying to drink out of my glass of water on mm. the dresser that I use as a bedside table. Only I think she's got some whiskers missing or something because she has very bad balance for a very cat. Bad balance and she sure. just fucking fell off of the dresser and grabbed onto my face with her claws on the way down and just like hooked me like a fish. And now I have a cut in my mouth. She comes out of the fucking bedroom. Like I'm in the living room. She comes out and she's like, Oh, you'll never, never believe what happened. And I thought it was one of her typical, like, you know, overreactive sort of things that Jamie sometimes does when she wakes up. Then she's like, the cat hooked my face. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. I've never heard of such a thing. I was bleeding from my mouth. I mean, you'd think that uh, Frida Gatto, you know, having slept with Trotsky and all, would have like a non-propaganda the deed, you know, like anarchist line on this sort of thing. But she just went straight straight after you. It was terrorism, really. Anarchist terrorism. She's like angry brigade up in our shit. Yeah. I mean, is she an older cat? Like how? No. Wow. She's, we, she was very small when we found her in the shaft of our yeah. building. I'd say she's at the most two years old. 
Since you're new to New York, Spencer, and congratulations and welcome to our Thank you. Oh, yes. Town. You just moved to New York Indeed. recently. We should have mentioned. You're joining all the socialites, yeah. Yeah, and socialists. Yeah. It's actually, we're, we're pleased that it's such a left city. Yes. Yeah. A- a- actually, you are legally required to live in New York if you have a leftist podcast. Right. So, yes. welcome. Yeah, and if not, you, you go elsewhere and you just like on online just completely obsess about the New York City uh, podcast scene. Oh, yeah. Like it's way more important than it actually is. Yeah, that's, that's practical. This, folks. But uh, yeah, as, as a new resident to our city, you're going to discover all sorts of wonderful things like um, uh, piss on the sidewalks and feces, uh, trash everywhere, rats, roaches, and also the air shaft, uh, which is something in between dumbbell apartments that uh, people throw various you know refuse into, including in our case, uh, cats. Kittens. Yeah, I, uh, I went to go get a coffee this morning wearing shorts, so it rained a little bit. I got some good garbage water splash on my legs, so... That's actually the uh, official New York City welcome. So right. that yeah. means there is vacancy. I, I actually saw the uh, first public masturbator that I'd seen in a while mm. while I was walking home last night. Ooh. And I looked over and I was like, oh, New York's not dead. 16 so. years in your first public masturbator? Well, no, it wasn't the first. I oh, said it was oh. the first in a while. Okay. All right, babe. Right. Look, I think the last one I saw was like... <laughs> I mean, th- I don't want to go too far afield here. But, so, well, uh, Spencer, like the, the point of her story is that you're here now, you're a leftist, you're in the best city in the country, maybe the world, and you have to become a public master. Right. Just so like work the on uh, Coney 2012 guy. De Blasio made it legal. <laughs> yeah. He did make it legal. After yeah. the Coney... Uh, He's 20, good for something. <laughs> after the Coney 2012 guy uh, showed us the shining path mm-hmm. to uh, liberation. That's right. So we talk about a lot of depressing shit here at the Antifada, and, you know, it's par for the course. We live in a depressing world. But um, True. I, I would like to combat the idea that all we ever do is bitch and complain. So starting now, and, and I think we've been doing it a little bit just organically, um, I would like to spotlight a little bit of good news. Yeah, that's a really good idea. From from the week. Yeah, a thanks, some warm, thanks, babe. Some warm fuzzies. So, uh, ASMR, they call it, I think. ASMR <laughs> for the heart. For the soul. ASMR for the soul. For the anti-photo mindset. Exactly. So on that note, I would like to spotlight um, a little little bright spot in all of our weeks in which um, the singer from Social Distortion, Mike Ness, was... Great band, great comrade. ...playing a concert, and uh, there was a MAGA chud in the audience who didn't like what he had to say about our president. Well, not my president, but you know... (laughs) And uh, the singer, Mike Ness, uh, responded in what I would say was in a fairly appropriate way. So folks can't see this at home, but um, they're playing on stage. Ooh, the music stops. What's happening now? Mike Ness is getting off the stage. If you couldn't hear what that guy shouted, it was, kick his ass, Mike. Hell yeah. Um, they came out of, the so- of a song, and then I guess he wrote another song about uh, racist America or something, something along those lines. And before the song, he had this big intro of how uh, horrible and racist America is, how Where's America, line? everyone Show me the line. in America is racist. How, and he said it started talking about... <laughs> Trump and ICE and uh, just the normal left critic of how he's a 
they racists and the detention camps of the, in the for ice and all the lies that everyone know been hearing and so that's this uh you can't see him obviously because we're on audio he has uh, a ham for a head he does have a ham for mm. a head. all these like, motherfuckers look the same he looks like if baked Alaska ate another baked Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. He's got a neck beard. I mean, just imagine, like, prototypical, like, dictionary definition of uh, MAGA chud, and this is the guy. So, you know, he's talking about what led up to this event, and now he's going to talk about uh, what Mike Ness uh, did in response. And proceeds to punch me multiple times in the <laughs> head. No, he spit in my face, and, of course, Spitting I got, got upset at that, and, you know, yelled at him about it and he jumps off takes his guitar off jumps off stage punches me r- r- multiple times in the head gets pulled off from the security <laughs> behind the fence uh, breaks free from that punches me gets a couple more punches in and then gets pushed back up on just stage he bust- that's the most i've seen andy smile at a video clip uh, in our entire <laughs> time together uh, that's what a certain internet message board calls salt <laughs> It's when you enjoy the tears of a vanquished foe. Oh, oh nice. okay. all, all right tears, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm vaguely familiar with that. So, uh, Spencer, do you think it's fair uh, to give Mike Ness uh, the uh, proletarian hero of socialist labor medal this week? Absolutely. I'd love to award it to him myself. Oh, that's a great fucking idea. So yeah. maybe we'll uh, have another show with Mike Ness and Spencer because I... Uh, been a social distortion fan for a long fucking time great band and apparently just based antifa right that's what's up antifa to mindset that's what's up so uh spencer's presence on our show today is at least partly the result of a serendipitous meeting at the socialism 2018 conference um i think we actually did reach out to him before that but um after meeting him and hanging out a little bit i decided to make it a priority hell yeah Yeah. and uh i saw him do a very good talk with rory fanning which was actually one of my favorite ones of the whole conference about his story and uh the role of imperialism in the capitalist global capitalist project and um well we'll get into more of the meat of those topics later but um i was very impressed by it and i was like you know what we got to have this guy on yeah, uh, Rory Fanning, uh, for those of you who may not know, is a war resistor himself from 2004, and he wrote a book called uh, uh, Worth Fighting For, An Army Ranger's Journey Out of the Military and Across America, and it chronicles his own resistance story, and him and I had been uh, corresponding for a while, and when I finally took my steps of getting out, uh, he's helped me along that path, and we decided to call our um, panel a war resistor uh, in the ranks, and we you know, discussed the different topics that uh, Jamie just alluded to. Hell yeah. So um, I feel like you've told your story a bunch of times already, uh, but do you want to just briefly summarize what went down, uh, how you got yourself uh, into and then out of the military and uh, all that good stuff? Sure. I'll give you the the bottom line up front was I enlisted uh, in the Army, in the infantry right outside of high school in 2010. Uh, while in basic training, I got a contract to join the Rangers, made it through that selection process, uh, deployed to Afghanistan in the summer of 2011, uh, was horrified with what I saw, um, didn't like it, wanted to find a way to change things from the inside at the time, because I didn't really have a coherent socialist framework or an anti-imperialist framework yet, so I decided I would uh, apply to West Point, 
uh, I got accepted. During my time at West Point, I realized that the issue uh, with the military was not a few bad personalities, but more of a structural phenomenon. And it wasn't just the military itself. It was directly linked to the capitalist mode of production. Uh, and from there, I kind of was stuck because uh, after your first two years at West Point, you're bound to a contract wherein if you decide to leave, you have to either give more enlisted time or find a way to foot a $250,000 bill. So I kind of told myself I'd find my own enclave within the military uh, and do my work to prevent bad things from happening. But of course, I knew that wouldn't you know, be possible in the long run. So I graduate West Point, commission as an officer, uh, as an infantry officer. And then while at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, for like the 17th time, again, I start to understand the, I guess, the contradictions that were inherent in my uh, earlier years in the Army in a more tangible way. And from there, I start to kind of grapple with how I could get out of the Army, maybe raise uh, uh, the issue of the military's role uh, in imperialism overseas, what we're actually doing there. Um, and I was searching for an opening. At that time, Colin Kaepernick had just begun protesting uh, police brutality and white supremacy in the United States. So this would have been like the fall of 2016. And incidentally, Rory Fanning himself uh, tweeted out something that went viral of him in his old battle dress uniform blouse with a sign that said veterans sitting with Kaepernick uh, in support of um, Kaepernick's efforts. And I kept my uh, finger on that pulse for a while. And a year later, uh, in September of 2017, it was a little bit different because, of course, Trump had gotten elected, and while imperialism continued all the same from Bush to Obama and so on, Trump, for me, marked a particular heightening of the contradictions. Uh, I had taken a couple of photos at my graduation that could be considered subversive, and I figured I'd sh you know, throw my support for Kaepernick because he had put some skin in the game. He lost his career and livelihood in order to uh, speak truth to power, and, and I tweeted out my own Veterans for Kaepernick bit, and from there I got you know put under investigation. I was flagged by my chain of command. Oh, and I'm sorry, just to clarify, what was your uh, Veterans for Kaepernick bit exactly? Uh, it was me in my uh, full dress uniform at graduation, displaying a sign within my hat that said "Communism will win." Yes. Uh, and then also a picture of me opening up that uh, uniform uh, to show a Che Guevara T-shirt underneath. And then uh, from there, um, I kind of went through the whole legal process. I uh, got charges brought up against me uh, by the Army, such as conduct and becoming of an officer for you know, speaking out against public officials as a, as a member of the military. And eventually, essentially, they gave me a choice. I could stand trial on what's called... Um, uh, a board of inquiry, which would have just been this circus act where they wouldn't have heard me out, or I could submit my uh, resignation, and I decided to submit my resignation. They issued me an other-than-honorable discharge, and I was out of the Army on uh, June 18th of this year. So you uh, you really did uh, put a lot on the line for that, because obviously a lot of folks in this country um, rely on the, the benefits that, a, that the military provides in terms of economic and educational opportunity. A question for you is, as I was looking this up, with a other than honorable discharge, uh, since you re-enlisted, mm -hmm. are you still eligible for the benefits that you had before? Yeah, I am. So part of the reason why I wanted to get out ASAP was I have an honorable discharge from my enlisted time uh, when I was in the Rangers. So although it's not as good as the benefits would have been if I got my full benefits from my officer time, I still qualified for um, the GI Bill and some of the basic health care programs that the VA offers. That's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. I did not know that. So um, 
if you guys want to know more about uh, Spencer's personal story, you can check out, uh, well, really any of the podcasts he's been on recently, yeah. but especially, especially his own newly launched podcast. It's called Eyes Left that he does with uh, a guy named Mike Preisner. And it's uh, I checked it out last night. It's very good. We both Thank listened you. to it. And uh, everybody, definitely go check out at least episode one because uh, not only are they smart and not only are they radical, uh, but they're doing a really great political project and a really awesome uh, intervention, I think, at this moment where we need more and more voices out there. Yeah, and... Plus, her sound quality is really good. I don't know how you did that so fast. Good job. <laughs> That's all Mike. That's yeah. I'm just you know speaking, but he handles all that stuff. So. All right, ups yeah. to Mike. Big yeah. ups to Mike. So yeah, that um, leads me into another thing that I wanted to ask you, which is, what are you trying to achieve with this new media project? So yeah, so Mike approached me with the project, um, and for us, it's in the spirit of a lot of the GI resistance newspapers and pamphlets that were quite prevalent during the Vietnam era. And of course, media has changed since then. And there are other uh, military podcasts uh, that are out there. But we thought, given both of our rules as explicit uh, anti-war uh, figures and as war resistors in general, that we could you know, provide a platform of sorts for active duty soldiers or veterans who might be feeling uh, as we feel. Mike, of course, um, he was at the forefront of Iraq veterans against the war uh, over 10 years ago. And he's been at it for a while. He's been a member of PSL for that long as well. That's Party for Socialism and Liberation for yep. folks who don't know. Yeah. And uh, so what we're trying to accomplish with it is, you know, letting the active duty military personnel know that they have certain rights uh, afforded to them and they have an ability to resist the military. Now, it's going to be different from person to person, but you don't have to deploy. You don't have to go kill uh, for the military-industrial complex. There is a way out, and both of us are proof of that. And whether they want to do it anonymously or more explicitly, we could help them in those efforts. That's great. Yeah, that was one thing that I was thought was really interesting about um, Eyes Left is your you and your co-host are constantly reaching out to any any active duty um, listeners that you might have and encouraging them to leave. You you talk to them almost as if they're in a cult. Yes. Like you say. Reach out to us. We'll talk you through it. You don't have to do this. Right. And um, I think that's a very, you know, kind and generous thing to do. Uh, at the same time, I wonder if th there's also a strategy to having a lot of woke people in the military to disobey orders. Certainly. Yeah, no, I'm, and I think that's a very uh, valid um, uh, statement to make because I always, you know, when I talk with people who are in right now and they say, well, what do I do? A lot of it depends on whether you're an officer, whether you're enlisted whether you're involved in infantry directly or you're kind of in more of a support role. Um, everyone has an important role to play uh, in, you know, formulating a, a resistance movement in the 21st century. Uh, so we've gotten a number of emails um, from certain people, and those who are maybe still early on in their contract, uh, we start to, you know, we kind of tell them there might be the best uh, route for you might be getting out uh, right now, doing whether it's conscientious objector status or another route, but if someone's maybe towards the end of their enlistment contract or in like a reservist capacity, I've you know 
told people, hey, you might have a better chance of just kind of talking with people um, in your unit and explaining to them the role of the military and, and who you're actually beholden to in terms of your relation to power. So, yeah, it is. It's a little bit more complicated and sophisticated than just saying, hey, you know, get out right now. And, and we're trying to work on answering those questions in the most you know specific way possible. Yeah, that's really good. And it brings me to another thing I was going to ask you. Um, I mean, the, the project of getting people to leave or not join the military in the first place, I think, is a valuable one. Um, I found it really touching at the Q&A portion of your talk at the Socialism Conference when, I mean, all of it, all of it was touching. But one really amazing moment was when a young woman got up and said that um, Rory Fanning, his work had actually helped her decide to not sign the papers and she was about to enlist in the military and then she didn't go and everyone applauded and it was really amazing and it must have been especially amazing for Rory but then again I think about all of the coercive economic pressures that are driving people to join the military in the first place and um like what uh I mean you probably don't have a complete answer to this because there isn't one but like what how do you help people who are dealing with those factors figure out um, what they can do instead to support themselves and have a good life? Yeah. Um, so there's a, I think there's a dual character to it. One of it is acknowledging that their desire to join because of various forms of economic issues or some of the social programs the military officer are quite enticing. So acknowledging that that's completely valid and you understand, I, I think, is important. But also you had to articulate in a way that isn't just scaremongering what your actual function is as a soldier. Um, Even if you're not pulling the trigger, whatever job you have in the military is to aid uh, the objective of killing other human beings. And when you kind of explain to them what human beings are killing and how it's completely divorced from any of these nebulous ideas of democracy or or freedom or, you know, the, the classic Americana ideology, it becomes a little bit more tangible, uh, the reality um, of what you're facing. But, you know, me, I was a pretty headstrong 18-year-old kid, and I didn't really listen too much to a lot of people who told me not to join. Uh, So a lot of times people are just going to have to figure it out for themselves. But at the very least, you could tell them to arm themselves with a critical mind and at least not take everything at face value uh, when they're in the military machine itself. In terms of the question of what would people do in lieu of the sort of economic um, benefits that you get from being in the military, I have to imagine that that your solution to that is tied up with your uh, understanding of uh, capitalism and imperialism being intertwined, right? So the question, of course, would be why are people in such a bad way that they have to go kill people overseas in order to get, say, the GI Bill, education, health care? Yeah, I, uh, I actually made that point in my talk itself, saying that, Any type of anti-war movement, and this also kind of doubles as my critique of some of the anti-war movements of the past 15 years, it has to be directly linked to a larger socialist project. Because until we grapple with capitalism on a systemic level, there's always going to be that impulse to join the military for those social programs. So until we have a vibrant, authentic socialist movement, uh, we're not going to really be able to adequately answer the question of anti-war and anti-imperialism. Yeah, so... I think uh, the relationship between uh, capitalism and war is not always readily apparent. I know there are a lot of liberals who are anti-war, just on a very 
basic human basis of feeling that it's wrong to go and kill people overseas for whatever reason, but they might not precisely make the connection. I mean, I know I didn't at first, like when I was protesting the Iraq war in high school, I was part of Food Not Bombs, but they didn't always have the most detailed uh, systemic critique. I don't, I don't want to throw shade. I love Food Not Bombs, but uh, yeah. So like maybe you guys can go through a little bit and kind of lay out the connection between uh, capitalism and imperialism and why they necessarily reinforce one another. I want to comment on, on what you said about uh, this sort of shallow uh, anti-imperialism or anti-war. I think it's important to have a structural critique, but like uh, the famous Marxist uh, Bob Fitch said, uh, you know, vulgar Marxism explains 90% of the world. Uh, vulgar anti-war also, you know, does a lot of work too. So, you know, I'm a veteran of the 2003 uh, anti-Iraq war movement. Um, which was very disheartening, but uh, it happened. And it didn't matter at that point in time when people came together then, or, or even now, right, whether they're coming at it from a no blood for oil, you know, perspective or a down with the military industrial complex, you know, not necessarily capitalism, but that, uh, or if they're blaming, you know, these neocon hawks that brought us into these wars or even like Obama, you know, as they call yeah. them, uh, it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, in, a, in the sense that if people are brought to that position and they're mobilized and they're out in the streets, that that in and of itself is important. I think for us, um, any true massive uh, anti-war movement will have a militant minority that does have a structural critique. And that's what I want to tease out for us and our listeners is something uh, deeper than that. You know, of course, these things are descriptive, but we want to get analytical about it. Certainly. To speak to your uh, issue with a lot of the elements of the anti-war movement that didn't have that structural critique, I just got back recently from the About Face Veterans Against the War Conference. Um, we had it in Seattle and they're formerly were known as Iraq Veterans Against War, but they've since expanded to include more veterans. But that was actually one of our main debates uh, we were having because in many ways the anti-war movement of the past you know, 15 years has been that of failure because we're still entrenched in Afghanistan now more than ever. Uh, Iraq, you know, uh, President Obama promised us that we would be out of it, but we're seeing a presence there that maintained itself and now is increasing once again and of course most importantly the mission creep happening in syria right now and various other uh army units in africa and around the world um not to mention our proxies of course who act upon on our behalf across you know the middle east like saudi arabia and yemen or various african or asian powers so spencer you said something really interesting before i want to call back to which is that you said for you and your experience that the election of trump was this sort of heightening of the contradictions, right? It, it sort of spurred you on yeah. to realize that something was seriously wrong and, and to look for a structural critique. So I think a good project for us to do here, similar to what you did in your experience, is to try to formulate the structural analysis for the folks out there who are encountering this story and maybe thinking for the first time about this connection between capitalist accumulation on the one hand and uh, war and imperialism on the other. Um, you know, I mentioned before this vulgar anti-imperialism, which, uh, you know, expressed itself in 2003. And as you said, I think quite correctly, was a was a huge failure. I think that we need to do better. Um, so, you know, a structural analysis of uh, contemporary imperialism uh, is key. Right. And within that, it's not simply that imperialism exists alongside capitalism. 
you know, it's that there, there's a sort of dialectical process, you know, there are these two interconnected processes uh, that work together. So it's a little tough because, you know, the laws of motion of capitalism is this sort of molecular process of competing capitalist powers, uh, trying to, you know, basically uh, win over profits in one spot, undercutting the other over there. But, um, of course, opening markets is super important and having a stream of commodities is super important. Now, on the other hand, with the imperialist aspect, you have uh, this kind of centralized power, not this anarchic capitalist system, but you have this centralized power of the bourgeois state that can use violence not only at home, <laughs> right, as we have seen, but also abroad uh, in order to make the world safe for uh, profit making, essentially. The, but in terms of capitalist imperialism, you know, the United States became uh, the capitalist uh, hegemon in the world. Um, and we should note that this was a bipartisan project. Right? Oh, oh, indeed. Like yeah. there was not a huge difference in foreign policy between uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, as the years have gone on. And there is the I would say like the military establishment is pretty bipartisan in nature. A hundred percent. And I think if you look at it, actually, the Democrats have been more hawkish uh, through that history than even the Republicans have. It's definitely a bipartisan uh, project, which I think goes to show that we have uh, two wings of capital uh, within our uh, political system in the United States. But the important thing, right, is that um, this power that America holds as the global imperialist capitalist hegemon, uh, it's not merely expressed in military means, right? Uh, you know, it's not just Korea or Vietnam or Iraq, and it's also not, you know, CIA operations uh, like we saw in uh, independent developing countries like, uh, you know, Iran under Mossadegh or Allende in Chile, these famous examples. Uh, what really separates the neo-imperialism of the United States from um, former modes of, you know, global domination like settler colonialism, how we were made here in the United States, and uh, direct foreign rule like the UK and uh, India, is, um, is this conception of hegemony, right? Uh, so hegemonic power is not just that military force, right? Uh, but it also util utilizes soft power and coercion as well, right, across the globe. Crucially, what American hegemony has done, as British hegemony did before that, is it pulls other nation states into its orbit. And it does that by creating a global system uh, with institutions, right? International institutions. We see this with NATO. We see this with the IMF. And uh, we see this increasingly with NGOs, right? Non-governmental organizations. Seemingly non-political, but uh, part of the project. And so the United States in this imperial project has been able to set the rules and the guidelines that benefit not just U.S. corporations, right? Whether they be military or otherwise, but international accumulation of capital across the globe. Uh, there is a stick, you know, within this imperialist structure, and we saw this in Afghanistan, and we saw this in Iraq, right? But there, of course, is also a carrot. That carrot is access to markets, access to capital, protection from aggression through things like NATO or, of course, uh, our PACs over in, uh, in East Asia, and basically a force in the world that guarantees a uh, sufficient rate of profit for the capitalist system as a whole, even if those gains are primarily in the imperialist core, right, in the United States uh, over the last 40, 50, 60 years, right? As long as this imperial hegemon uh, 
uh, can provide these subordinate states with a portion of the proceeds of that empire through its economic force and its military force, the system as it exists is accepted in these other core capitalist countries, advanced capitalist countries, uh, even as it's fought very bitterly and heroically in the periphery by uh, people who uh, suffer under it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, uh, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and all these proxy wars that are existing now, they show that the United States is like, you know, returning back to this imperial heyday, you know, where we're using our hard power around the globe. But what I would argue is that while Afghanistan and Iraq and the war on terror, it may seem like basically a reassertion of U.S. Uh, imperial power, uh, it's, and I think, actually a reflection of our decline. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, as we economically have less and less uh, sway over the world, as we militarily overstretch ourselves across the entire globe, spending more and more of our uh, gross national product on uh, military in an increasingly poor economic environment, uh, the United States is kind of thrashing around the world right now, uh, getting in these endless wars um, for seemingly very little you know, purpose and, and payback for it. So... Basically, I would say that, you know, if you look at Trump, as I began, right, he's kind of like our Nero, right? So he's he's fiddling right now as uh, on Twitter as the as the world burns. Fiddling with his iPhone. Fiddling with his iPhone as the world burns. Uh, he kind of represents this crisis of liberal democracy and also, I think, a, a degradation of the U.S. ruling class's ability to find a reasonable representation of its interest. Um, so I think ultimately, and, and I want your, your take on this, the question is, will the United States, uh, in this moment of imperial decline, as I put it, uh, go gently into that good night? Uh, will it wind down its imperial death machine? Um, uh, will it uh, check the imperatives of infinite growth that are baking the fucking planet right now and threatening all human existence? Uh, or are we going to go down fighting like uh, past empires have when they've gone down? Um, I think that the, that proposition is very fucking scary right now, because um, if we go out like the British went out in the Second World War when we took over for them, we don't have another world war in us. The next world war is going to be a nuclear war. And with Trump you know, at the trigger, um, it's very imperative right now that we all start to organize, agitate, educate, and fight. Right. Uh, so right off the bat, uh, I want to invoke a little Antonio Gramsci who's one of my most, uh, I guess, influential theorists I've read. But he has he once mused that um, the old world is dying, the new one struggles to be born, and during this interregnum, a variety of morbid symptoms appear. And you, I think, hit on some of those morbid symptoms, this uh, death drive towards capital accumulation, um, and a more you know smaller-scale thing, something like Trump arising and getting elected against all odds and all preconceived notions of how politics works in this uh, imperial uh, core. But I think, uh, unfortunately, that the United States is going to, if it does go down, go down with a fight. I don't think the ruling class is going to surrender its power willingly at all. I hate to say it, but I agree with yeah. you on that one. And, and you bring up the notion of uh, hegemony. And, and, and again, to invoke uh, Gramsci, he has a notion of um, cultural hegemony. And what makes this situation so harrowing is that even – ostensible radicals or those who are trying to resist uh, the United States imperialist machine inherently adopt some of the trappings of the empire itself. We, we can't even conceive of a world beyond 
our current existence. You know, another classic phrase, you know, it's easier to conceive the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Suddenly, <sighs> Posadism doesn't seem so crazy. <laughs> right. Now, that being said, I don't think it's uh, instructive or helpful to view uh, the coming capitalist crisis as a sort of teleology where, you know, things, it's inevitably going to trend towards a collapse and then we need to see. No, I, I think nothing is written. But given uh, the existing circumstances, given the military presence in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and all over the world, this empire is hyperextended. Uh, and it is a house of cards in a way. And we ourselves on the left, I think, are going to have a chance, uh, whether it's in a few years or 10 years, to, to seize that opportunity and try to stake out a counter hegemony, if you will. So while we don't want to adopt the trappings of the ruling class, we need to recognize what their tactics and strategies are and kind of reformulate them for our own uh, purposes. I agree 100%, and this is why I think the two, you know, as we've been talking about, have to be intertwined, right? If you are anti-war, you have to be anti-capitalism because the two things are basically so determined, you know, amongst uh, themselves that uh, you can't uh, get rid of one without the other. As I said before, you know, we have this dying empire on a dying planet, as you talked about. The socialist left, the anti-capitalist left, has to try to featherbed this, as we say in the union movement, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, if you're going down, let's go down gently, right? And we can't do that by simply attacking the military-industrial complex alone, although that is part of it, right? We need to attack both uh, tips of this spear, or both poles of this uh, domination of imper and imperialism. And as the famous philosopher Walter White once said, no half measures, all right? No half measures. You can't have one without the other. Uh, I, I would also like to pick at a little bit uh, the sort of liberal anti-war idea that uh, the best way to change things is through uh, bourgeois democracy and electing the right people, right? Because we have seen some moves out of the left wing of the Democratic Party lately to uh, lay out a better vision of foreign policy than the one we have seen so far from the democratic establishment and even make some connections between our bloated military funding and widespread austerity. And I think a lot of people are looking at that as the best, most quote unquote realistic option for winding down the military industrial complex and in U S empire. Um, what, uh, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Well, uh, I, I think you're right in saying that uh, there's this particularly liberal impulse to adopt anti-war rhetoric almost as an ideology in and of itself, that if we end the wars and we focus on ourselves domestically, that everything will be all right. But of course, um, all of the you know creature comforts that we know, especially in, in the United States, but the West in general, come from the extraction of natural resources in places like Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and so on. So... Uh, I think that a lot of those liberals have their hearts in the right place, but it's a question of political education uh, in, in more ways than one. And we got to find a way to speak to the larger systemic features of uh, war and why these wars are endless, because they're designed to be that way. Uh, they're exceptionally profitable uh, for various arms dealers and contracting companies. And we need to also look at the figures in those countries we're occupying who we co-opt and collaborate with. And through that, I, I think you could get at a better idea of what uh, anti-imperialism actually constitutes joined up with um, a, a countering 
uh, vision of the world in terms of like what a socialist uh, program would look like. Totally. I think this is something that even some leftists still have trouble getting their minds around. Yeah, like, I would agree. I, I would really like to see more of an internationalist perspective in the DSA, for instance. I think we, a lot of people have it, but it still has not quite crystallized in the institutional way that I think it needs to. I think a lot of, a lot of the time, international issues like um, Israel-Palestine are treated as sort of a second-order thing mm-hmm. when, in fact, they are inextricably linked from our socialist project. Yeah, like you were saying, it's not just that the liberals lack a good analysis. I think, as you said, oftentimes people on the hard left, the far left, whatever you want to call it, the anarchist or the Marxist left, uh, take up some pretty poor and uh, you know badly thought out positions on this. This third worldist idea that exists out there, uh, it really is, it seems like the anti-imperialism of fools. Uh, there are people out there that argue that the working class in the core countries, which would be all of us sitting in this room right there, right, are actually uh, ourselves exploiting uh, the um, subaltern folks uh, in the underdeveloped world, the third world, whatever you want to call it, and that we're actually the aristocrats of labor and that we're irredeemably reactionary. And in fact, some argue that we are part of the bourgeoisie itself, right? Um, So like, because we get these imperialist crumbs, right? There's like no way that we can be organized. It has to be, you know, the Naxalites somewhere in in India, these Maoist rebels or or Tibet or something like that, right? I think this... um, Actually, why don't I stop there? Do you want to address that? Yeah, well, I think in in every sense it's a form of political impotence in a way. And it's a way uh, for you in the West to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, well, you know, we're part of the problem. I don't have to do anything. I could just sit here and say how bad we are. And that, in you know, the mind of, you know, whoever follows that political line becomes a form of political praxis, but it does nothing. And I want to say, uh, from my perspective and others I've talked to, it's actually quite Orientalist in a way, because you fetishize uh, the struggles of people uh, in places like Syria and places like India. And those people who are engaged in protracted struggles for, you know, decades in some cases at this point, they're not looking for us to uh, do this whole self-referential, oh, we're so guilty. No, we need to organize our own movements, and that's how we show internationalist solidarity. Dead ass. And and you talked about the people that are struggling in these places right here. So often, how many fucking times do you hear critical support for Assad, critical support for Gaddafi, critical support for Saddam Hussein, or fucking Putin, or fucking China, yeah. right? We, as internationalists and as anti-capitalists, we do not stand with other fucking nation-state leaders. We stand with the working classes of those countries, right? This conception that the enemy of the enemy and the United States government is our enemy, right, is our friend, is completely fucking bankrupt. And I think you're 100% correct that what this turns into ultimately is some sort of like performative fucking bullshit. What does it mean to critically support Assad? Are you going over there? Are you like fucking fighting with like the Syrian Bathist party? Some of them do though. <laughs> yeah, well, fuck them. If you do that, go ahead. Then then at least you're fucking critically supporting instead of sitting on a fucking computer with your Twitter account with a fucking Juche avatar fucking calling, you know, all these fucking running dogs of imperialism, Stan Assad, fucking destroy U.S. empire. It's complete fucking bullshit. And it's performative. And to borrow a term from the alt-right... It is fucking virtue signaling because exactly as you said, as the politics of impotence, it says that 
I can sit here and do nothing practically in the core imperialist power where change has to happen, and I can just fucking sit here and I can fucking berate other people for not being not having the right line on this while doing nothing material to organize in their community, in their workplace, to fight against war, to fight against imperialism at home, and it's a, it fucking makes me sick to be honest. I, uh, I'm fucking angry. And part of the way you know that it's bullshit is that. You can look at all of the Marxist-Leninist groups, and they all have radically different... They're on every side of the Syrian civil war. Seriously? Yeah. There's a there's a blog, uh, I, I forgot what it's called, but if you search, like, left positions on the Syrian civil war, they list, like, 15, 20 different groups, and they all have different takes. You know, like, like each Trotskyist group is on a different side. There's literally Trotskyists fighting Trotskyists. Seriously. In the Syrian civil war. O- online. And, and like... And this goes, there's like an 80-year fucking history, especially with Trotskyists. I'm sorry, my our Trotskyist friends out there, right? But like, how many of these, you know, Fourth International times a thousand have broken apart over some correct line over some anti-imperialist struggle around the globe? Like, I get it. People want to get involved. They want to have the, the right line on something, right? But like, we got to be way fucking past that at this point in time, right? Certainly. We can't be fucking standing, even China, all right? Marxist Leninists out there, tankies out there, if you have any complaints... Don't email us right now. Just go on some fucking subreddit and, like, shitpost about us. That's all you do anyway. It's totally fucking fine. But people are trying to hold up China as, like, an anti-imperialist hegemon. All the capital going into Africa right now, that you know, the financial debt that those countries are in, the fucking exploitation by Chinese capital, they're paving half of fucking Africa right now. Yeah. And you're gonna and, and they're put they're setting up fucking bombing bases in the middle of the South China Sea. And you're gonna say that fucking China is a progressive power and not imperialist? Like go fuck yourself. Right. Um and I wanna add, it's you know, it's complicated just because uh, you know, you might have critiques of a leader or a political group in another country does not mean you support U.S. intervention. Exactly. You could be against both of them. And I got to tell you, there's nothing that the U.S. military loves more than the left completely dividing itself Mm -hmm. and relinquishing any stake uh, in the struggle, both here and abroad. And that's what happens when you have these completely ahistorical and divorced from any actual knowledge of those countries. When you have this position of, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, so I, I also want to hit on the fact that I'm glad you brought up the situation of Africa, for all intents and purposes, uh, being colonized. Because, again, uh, there's I said earlier it's Orientalist to fetishize a lot of these movements, but there's a, a sense of racism there and also of American exceptionalism and uh, a U.S.-centric perspective because – Every reference to the struggles abroad concerns the role of the U.S. in those affairs, and it doesn't start with the people of those countries or the government of that country. It starts with the, Uni- the United States' role in-, in being an arbiter there, and I think that is precisely the problem. And if you kind of strip away the U.S.-centric perspective, then we can have an adequate debate on what it means to support our comrades around the world. Thank you, and that and that comes exactly like as we've been talking about from a structural critique. Yeah. Uh, and just one more fucking thing on this, because I don't want to be picking on Maoists, I don't want to be picking on Trotskyists, I don't want to be picking on anybody. I'll add the anarchists in here too, because Noam Chomsky, who was my gateway drug into all this shit, right? Same. Does the same? Does much of the same thing? You know, the U.S. is like the uh, evil power in the world and everything that you know we do uh, we do you know to destroy other people and that we, you know we're the worst in the world yeah, we are but that's like it's not enough that, it's not enough that sounds so anarchist like anarchist too you're on the hook 
That sounds like a pretty idealist conception of the problem, like the U.S. is just evil or whatever, when we should be looking at the material explanation. I mean, I straw man Chomsky a little bit, but yeah, like, um, yeah. you know, it's the it, materialist critique is kind of lacking in saying yeah. this yeah. person's evil or this group is evil. Indeed. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's not the antifada mindset. So the Russia stuff is obviously fucking ridiculous, right? And like, you know, some leftists might be doing it as a reaction to dumb, dumb liberals who are like, oh, uh, Putin subverted our democracy and uh, gave the election to Trump. And then the equally stupid reaction, which is like, yas, queen, we stand with comrade Putin yeah. against uh, U.S. imperialism, giving yeah. us a taste of our own medicine, yeah, you know, right. fucking with our elections as if two wrongs could ever make a right. But even in cases where the people who uh, tankies, American tankies are standing with are more sympathetic could still be problematic, right? Like like we were talking about what's happening in Syria and a lot of American leftists have uh, a lot of investment in Rojava and in right. Kurdish nationalism, mm -hmm. which is sort of tied to that. And I, even I will admit to being very sympathetic and interested in what's happening in Rojava, but I still don't support Kurdish nationalism because nationalism is bad. Regardless, um, the Palestinian people who are not oppressing anyone at the moment, right? There's no argument that could be made for that. Um, a lot of Palestinian nationalism is a reaction to oppression, right? To Israeli oppression, to settler colonialism. And yet, I, and it's obviously better than the nationalism of the conquerors, but I still am not really comfortable Standing with... Standing Hamas. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still not really comfortable with... Uh, well, yes, to, that too. But even the idea of a Palestinian nation state as the solution to the oppression that's going on there, right? People talk about the two-state solution or the one-state solution. Like, we want the fucking no-state solution. R right. Yeah. I, I will say that um, I understand that national liberation is far different um, from nationalism as we know it, for example, in the United States. And, and the question of the two-state versus one-state solution, as many Palestinian activists will say, the, the, the two-state solution does not exist. It's not a reality. And the only way for us to even begin to take the steps of Palestinian liberation is for the one-state solution. Of course, as Norman Finkelstein would say, you know, as you know, as a classic communist, I support a no-state but uh, no-state solution. But as it stands now, I do recognize and I do agree that a one-state solution for the Palestinian peoples is the only way for them to have any semblance of rights and material dignity in yeah. their country. C certainly, in the short term, that's something that I also support. I don't want anyone to get it twisted. But um, if the end, if the end product, if that, if the horizon is a state that is ruled by a Palestinian ruling class, that's not going to be enough. Exactly, yeah, 100%. And I think that that, again, comes down to politics, and it comes down to vision, and it comes down to short, medium, and long term. Because I'm sympathetic with the left composition of uh, anti-nationalism in general, and obviously it's an anarchist thing as well, right? But, of course, you know, that has to be moderated IRL because, you know, people are suffering in the real world. Um, national liberation... Uh, you know, I could go on a spiel about how I think at a point in time it was progressive in the Marxist sense, but I think now you have empirical evidence across the entire world with the anti-colonial struggle that it has taken a foreign ruling class yeah. and replaced it with an indigenous one. Certainly. That said, you know, like 
it's really tough to sit here in New York City and like talk shit on Palestinians exactly. fighting for their freedom. Yeah. So let's there's yeah. there's, a, there's a way to square that circle, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And I understand why people might be sensitive about it, especially when people I don't know, I'm not gonna name any names, but folks with uh, specific uh, online shit posty agenda might go a little too far out of the way uh, talking shit on the. Uh, the Palestinian nation question. Oh, I don't know who you're referring to. We'll <laughs> put that in the show notes, I guess. You're getting oh called God. out in our fucking show notes. Oh, uh, that was... <laughs> Back... so, so we know what we cannot achieve, right, by being uh, armchair third worldists sitting here in the U.S. and uh, supporting enemies of U.S. imperialism in ways that don't make any sense. But what can we do? And I'm really interested in getting your take on this, Spencer, because I know you've talked a lot about uh, direct action within the army rank and file and the potential for mutinies and insubordination. Yeah, so I think that any form of resistance within the ranks, and we could start with this as a case study, um, today, given the existing material conditions, it's going to happen on the molecular level. Uh, Sean earlier mentioned the molecular features of capitalism. Well, if you want to actually achieve some foothold and you know getting soldiers out of the military or causing them to refuse orders, it's going to start on, on a level where soldiers amongst themselves kind of talk, kind of have their own smaller organizing uh, committees. I had something of the sort when I was in uh, with a group of people, both when I was a cadet and as an officer. And we all kept in touch with each other, and we all had our own systemic critiques. We would do reading groups that started with a form of political education. We'd read different Marxist theories and, and stuff of that nature. I myself being a rather, I guess, provocative figure in compar- comparison to them. And given you, my, no way. <laughs> yeah. And given my uh, direct experience with the war in Afghanistan, I found an opening where an individual act of rebellion and resistance might move the needle a little bit. And in the history of uh, soldiers resisting, for example, in Vietnam, it didn't just start out with a mass movement. Uh, individual acts of resistance are historically important and valuable. And... Once you have one, two, and then three people, you know, pick up that task, it starts to influence others. And then from there, you kind of normalize the idea of it's a possibility to resist the army. It's a possibility to refuse to deploy. And we came close to that uh, in the mid-2000s, but then uh, the Obama election kind of subsumed a lot of the anti-war efforts into the liberal mindset that we discussed previously. But I do think uh, that right now, we are seeing the cracks uh, starting to form uh, in the foundation of uh, the capitalist military enterprise. Uh, there's uh, my friend and classmate Matt Malcolm, who recently got out as a conscientious objector. Uh, there's Captain Brittany DeBarros, who's currently uh, – she was on active duty as a reservist. Uh, she got called up, but she's most of the time a reservist, but she's currently engaged and a struggle with the United States Army uh, and, and fighting a battle for her just speaking out against the military-industrial complex and tweeting out facts about the number of deaths, the number of people bombed every day. And you could see how terrified the military gets when, you know, a, a person, one of their personnel just says the most uh, lighthearted of critiques of just pointing out facts that the military itself posts. Mm. Um, so in terms of the, the actual direct action and tangible efforts – Right now, we're not at the you know uh, stage, I, I suppose, where we're all going to grab our rifles and storm the barricades. Um, maybe down the line, but right now, 
those individual acts of rebellion could lead to a larger mass movement that gives people the courage to resist. And from there, we could channel it into a larger socialist movement. You said uh, – so before we get into some more historical uh, incidences of, of mutinies in the army, <clears throat> you said that you saw some cracks right now in the culture of the army and the armed forces. And I was thinking – I remember leading up to the election hearing a lot of troops say that, well, they might not like Trump, but at least he was against going to war in Syria, against expanding mm-hmm. these insane wars. Like he talked about pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, he pretended that he was – to the left of Clinton on Iraq. Um, but now we've seen that that's not the case. Right. Uh, do you think that there's a lot of people like you in the army, um, you know, if not reading Marx or reading uh, interested in anti-imperialist ideas, just generally wanting there to be a change in the system that keeps us in these endless, pointless wars that nobody believes in? I do. Uh, I would say that 99% of the people in the military do not like being in the military. You're taken away from your home, from your family, from your support network. And your life is just miserable. Now, in terms of the political consciousness, that's a different question. But there is a sizable minority of military personnel sympathetic to our politics. Um, the Although I received a number of death threats and, you know, from, I don't know, like Trump, MAGA warrior, 1776 online, I got a lot of emails and a lot of outreach from active duty personnel who are grappling with the question in their own way. So I, from my own direct experience, I know it's out there. The problem is, and this is a question we ourselves on the left have to answer, is how do we establish that counter-hegemony and build up the counter-infrastructure and support networks? So if people do want to leave the military and do want to get out, how do we bring them into the fold then and allow them to become a part of our movement? What, of course, we don't want to center them, but letting them know that we're with them, we understand, and they have a vital role to play uh, in this larger movement we're trying to create. So that reminds me of something we were talking about a few episodes ago, which is how do you get someone to make the jump from hating their boss and hating their job Mm. to having a systemic critique of capitalism? Because it's not necessarily a given and it's not something that's always going to happen, you know, when you just leave a bunch of individuals, atomized individuals to their own devices. Like how maybe you could talk about how you made the jump or like how... How do we get people there from one place to another? Sure. Well, in many ways, it's it's almost too soon to say because I'm still in that moment myself. Uh, what I'm trying to do is set an example that, of course, whenever you engage in any type of civil disobedience or resistance, you're going to take a hit. There is going to be something, if you're challenging power effectively, where you're, you might lose um, you know, a stake in a career or some you – know, whatever benefits as we discussed earlier but you're going to take a hit but in that process of losing something you gain something more uh and whether it's dignity for yourself or being part of something where you actually are serving the people that's the wager and it's kind of uh it's a question i've been grappling with too and given that i'm really only two months removed it remains to be seen how effective uh my action was and you know everyone around me but i do think uh getting people to make that jump is possible because of the the historical content of resistors in this country's history and countries around the world. Yeah, that the historical aspect is something we like to do here on the Antifada, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I think the context, maybe, to, to put your experience in, and I hope you agree with me on this, is that uh, we are in 
a cycle of struggles right now. There's a term, it's not really that jargony, right? But it essentially says that there are moments when people are atomized. Uh, there's moments when mass movements don't exist. But these pressures sort of build up. And there's these cycles where people come together. They create mass movements that connect all these different struggles together. The struggles against imperialism, against poverty, against capitalism itself, right? And then eventually, you know, this reaches this high tide. And then it kind of... Uh, drifts away and then we return to this cycle at a later date so we're 10 years from the fiscal crisis uh as people remember that crisis of capitalism um the last high tide that we had was uh i think i'd say in the, the early 1970s our favorite decade on the antifada hell yeah so you know it, it makes some sense i think to go back and look at some concrete examples of uh exactly the kind of work that you're doing and how that has gone from these sort of individual acts uh, and, you know, small cadre of, of folks trying to reach out and turn into a mass movement. Because if we saw anything, you know, in the Vietnam War and uh, something like the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, it was these individual grievances turning into structural critique, turning into mass movements and actually changing the course of history. Yeah. Uh, so for me personally, one of the uh, moments I took inspiration from was Andy Stapp's efforts in the 70s to unionize the army uh, during the Vietnam era. And Snap is an interesting figure because he actually was a college student who had burnt his draft card. But after being involved in the anti-war movement for some time, he ultimately decided that salting the army, in a sense, was the way to go. And so he voluntarily enlisted, uh, ended up at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and for there, uh, from there did his part in trying to radicalize troops on the inside. And by salting here, you do not mean enjoying the tears of your enemies, but <laughs> in the more traditional formation, joining or getting a job somewhere in order to unionize it. Yes. And I, I think why staff as a case study is so important is much like there's this mythology that Vietnam veterans coming back got spat upon. There's also this conception and it exists on the, left, uh, on the left, too, that the only reason there is any resistance was because of a draft. And in fact, uh, while that's an element of it, uh, a great. A uh, number of the war resistors themselves were volunteers. Mm. And I think it's important for us to grapple with the question of how disillusionment plays a vital role in radicalization and uh, creating a consensus of uh, radicals uh, in the military. Hell yeah. I think Andy actually has a really awesome clip from a uh, John Pilger uh, news broadcast from 1970 called The Quiet Mutiny. It's about uh, exactly what we're talking about here in Vietnam. About the same next week, and the next, and the next, until the very last American division, combat division, is withdrawn. And so far, for all the words from Washington, only paper soldiers have gone home. The war isn't over, but it is ending. It is ending not because of the Paris talks or the demonstrations at home. It is ending because the largest and wealthiest and most powerful organization on earth, the American army, is being challenged from within, from the very cellars of its pyramid from the most forgotten, the most brutalized, and certainly the bravest of its members. The war is ending because the grunt is taking no more bullshit. I just don't like, uh, I just can't take too much pressure from the army. What happens to an unpopular officer out in the field? Most of the unpopular officers, from what I heard, if they, if they mess with a grunt too much, they get shot out there. A friend of mine, uh, Captain, uh, Kind of got shot in the back. What, what was he doing? What was the captain doing to deserve well, being shot what, in the back? Uh, from what my friend said, he was uh, 
tell him just go on through. And uh, well, they were getting they were getting hit pretty bad, and uh, he was telling them just keep on going. <laughs> they said no. He kind of kind of got shot. Well, yeah, there's a lot of mistakes, but you know the grunts um, don't always do what the captain says. You know, we got uh, see, the captain will stay back. You'll tell a platoon or something to go out so many hundred meters, you know. We don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> we only go as far as we get out of sight, sit down, and come back in. Yeah. We don't want to hit contact. That's one thing we don't want to hit. So I think that that's not only Pilger's editorial there, but that's also actual troops uh, in Vietnam. We don't know whether they're volunteers or whether they were conscripted uh, talking about this phenomenon that already in 1970, so five years before you know Saigon Falls, have been talking, uh, you know, have been organizing around insubordination and sometimes more violent acts. And just to show folks before we kind of get back to the Vietnam thing, uh, that this isn't just John Pilger, who's a famous leftist journalist, right? Uh, I have a quote here from an article published in the Armed Forces Journal from 1971. This is a Marine colonel, uh, a combat veteran. This Marine colonel says, quote, By every conceivable indicator, our army that remains in Vietnam is in a state of approaching collapse, with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers, and non-commissioned officers, officers. Sedition, coupled with disaffection from within the ranks and externally fomented with an audacity and intensity previously inconceivable, infests the armed forces. So that's straight from the uh, army brass right there. Uh, it was a real phenomenon, and I think it's instructive for us today when we think about maybe the failures of 2003 to stop the war and the kind of efforts that uh, uh, Spencer here is calling for. Yeah, and bringing it back then to Stapp, well, I think his uh, contributions to the anti-war movement were so significant is um, when we talked about the question of atomization, and even in the anti-war movement in its early stages, you have different, you know, soldiers, Marines, what have you, who had their own um, subjective experiences of disillusionment or discontent, and Stapp in terms of what we were discussing earlier, tried to take that energy and channel it into an actual strategic uh, position of unionizing the army directly. Um, and I'll say, part of my investigation uh, on me in, in the packet, one of the charges brought against me was that I had advocated for military labor unions. Um, and it's in U.S. code right now. It's explicitly illegal wow. to advocate for them because of this guy in his 20s who just by talking with soldiers uh, throughout the barracks, at training events, like I said, on the molecular level, he got them on board. Uh, with the attempts at unionizing uh, soldiers. And from there, it absolutely uh, terrified the brass, and they had to put it into law to make sure that this would never be attempted again. That's incredible. Uh, and I think that one of the um, subversive... He's talking about uh, these people were fermented uh, disaffection from the outside, right? This is something I think that the history is, is very, very poorly presented uh to us you know when we're kids or when we're watching the history channel or whatever it is that it's just these you know middle class college students at kent state or wherever who are protesting they're watch, uh, marching on the pentagon or whatever the case may be 
there were real grassroots efforts from um, not just college students and social young socialists and older socialists, but also veterans, you know, who had returned from Vietnam to open up things like uh, informational coffee shops, yep. right, to reach the active rank and file grunt and to try to make this molecular discontent into something bigger. So there really were subversive, for, subversive forces on the outside, and we liked them. They did really good right. work. And it's important to note uh, at that time, you know, of course, the civil rights struggle was a very yes. living memory for many people. So like uh, for the black experience in the military, you see a lot of the same, of course, structural racism present uh, in society within the ranks. And so, uh, you know, groups like the Black Panthers were very serious about reaching out to black veterans and helping them name their experiences and take that discontent and turning it into a larger social movement. Yeah, and a lot of uh, women were radicalized through this as well. Like we talked a few episodes ago about the National Welfare Rights Organization, which was women, mostly black women, who were explicitly making the connection between their reproductive labor uh, for society, you know, raising the next generation of workers or soldiers or whatever, and uh, their sons being sent to die overseas. And they wanted to claim, hey, this is labor in service of capital. We deserve something in return. Hell yeah. yeah. That's what, you know, that's why in the beginning I, I, I put this, uh, this conception of the cycle of struggles there because, you know, the Vietnam experience, we can call it, in, not only at home but obviously also abroad, happens in a, in a kind of historical conjunction of all these, like you say, the Black Panthers. We're also talking about the growth of the SDS. Yeah. We're talking about you know mass socialist organizing across the country, mass wildcat strikes. It was a real moment when, uh, again, you know, there was this connection of not just soldier to soldier or worker to worker or connecting their struggles together, right? Uh, it was this this sort of uh, movement of movements, as we called it in the 1990s, that uh, all together created this kind of ferment uh, within the cycle of struggle that really reached its peak. In some senses, it's expression in this anti-war, anti-Vietnam movement. Yeah. In addition to all this uh, popular resistance we saw to the Vietnam War, there was another citizen resistance effort uh, around the same time. And, you know, the popular resistance to Vietnam had some very real victories, right? It basically ended the war. But um, this other resistance effort went uh, even farther than that. And I'm talking, of course, about the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. Yeah, so the Carnation Revolution was vitally important to my own radicalization as well because it was led by a group of young captains, junior officers. And similarly to America being involved in a seemingly endless war abroad, at the time, Portugal was uh, heavily entrenched in Mozambique, Angola, and at the time what was known as Portuguese Guinea. Uh, you are an Italian-American, so you're allowed to use that slur, but go on. Yeah, right, <laughs> folks. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So ba, ba, ba. that was good. That was really good. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. It's okay. Take your time. <laughs> I derailed you, my man. That was good. Yeah, like keeping me uh, honest. Yeah. We do do comedy sometimes. Yeah, of course. We have a lot of anti-Italian rhetoric here going on. Well, you're our first Italian-American oh, guest. Oh, really? You know, That's not big. just our Is first so? troop, but also our first Italian. I've been writing a medium post about the harassment I received at the Antifada. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-Italian-American yeah. sentiment. It's, it's gonna post hey, while yo. we're still recording. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to be really awkward. Yeah, Spectre. <laughs> among us, yeah. But uh, anyhow, 
So of all the other slurs we have, we're now anti-Italian. Right. <laughs> right. Sorry, go on, go on. We're equal opportunity offenders. That's right. Yeah. Oh god. All right. No. Uh, no more slurs. Go yeah. On. All right. So yeah. So these group of uh, junior officers they formed uh, what was known as the Armed Forces Movement, and their chief demand was the end of the Portuguese colonial project, and. Again, we talked about organizing at the molecular level. So the the young officers spearheaded this movement, but they also had ties with some of the NCOs and other recruits. That's non-commissioned officers, right? Yes, correct. Uh, and what was so compelling about the Carnation Revolution is that it essentially occurred without a shot being fired by the revolutionary forces. Um that's and, so good. Yeah. That's good as hell. That's, the, like, that's the future the left wants. I really I really want to use this segment to debunk the idea that uh, leftist revolutions always have to be bloody and violent and horrible. Right. Um, and that's important because I don't think any of us here are pacifists, but, you know, there's a tendency among a certain tendency on, uh, or a certain group on the left to fetishize the idea of violence, and that's a very dangerous path to go down. Agreed. Uh, and in many ways you adopt the militarism inherent in this society and in the United States Armed Forces itself. But, yeah, the the revolution goes off uh, without a single shot being fired. And the, the people themselves, in an interesting act of uh, spontaneity, they were instructed by the revolutionary leaders to kind of stay home, you know, because it might get violent, it might get dangerous. But the masses actually disobeyed that and joined all the soldiers uh, in the street as they were... You know, refusing orders. They're occupying uh, street corners, uh, the roads themselves. And what happens then is that uh, you have a group of radical junior officers. Then you have a couple generals who are kind of middle of the road, centrist, social democracy types. And after the fascist regime uh, is overthrown, you see this internal struggle happening, which again is another lesson learned, wherein. Uh, Portuguese becomes an ostensible democracy of sorts, but some of the more radical elements get lost uh, in the shuffle. But much like Vietnam, you have the actual goal of ending the war abroad, being successful, and then the social effects that happen afterwards, you know, it remains to be determined where that goes. And again, for us right now, we need to be very conscious of that. But I just want to emphasize the Carnation Revolution as an example of a directly anti-imperialist struggle. That was accomplished not by, you know, shooting you generals, which, you know, is good practice in and of itself, <laughs> but by work stoppages, by striking, by occupations, which to this day, of course, the general strike is the greatest weapon in the hands of the working class. And one would say the rank and file military, right? Because I think that uh, one huge aspect of this and why it's really interesting is that uh, it was essentially, as they say, as you guys said, nonviolent. Uh, the reason it's called the Carnation Revolution, right, is because it happens in, on what April 25th, yes, which was Carnation season yes. in uh, uh, in Portugal, and so they put flowers in the guns and the and the uh, barrels of the tanks, right, right. and uh, that was part of the celebration of the yes. entire thing. And they were red, so you know, of yeah. course, in solidarity with the mm -hmm. socialist and our, communist our, content. Of our it. favorite color, indeed, mm -hmm. our favorite color. So I was going to ask you. Um, what was different about this revolution versus uh, the Vietnam War resistance that turned it into a successful uprising against not just the imperial war machine, not just those particular wars, but the fascist state at large? Um, and I think you just touched on one of them, which was the 
the relationship between the army and the general population, right? Because, I mean, it, it's possible that I've gotten the wrong idea from movies and TV, but it seems to me like the troops had a lot of trouble reintegrating into society when they came back from Vietnam and some of the treatment on the part of these like campus uh, student activists uh, was it, it wasn't the best towards the veterans of the war. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it, that's a larger historical question because in Portugal, you actually have more of um, a longstanding communist movement. They had an actual communist party. Uh, so, Unlike the U.S., where we have decades of uh, anti-communist propaganda from the first Red Scare, then into the second Red Scare, uh, in Portugal, uh, communism and socialism were valid uh, political perspectives. So even if you were in the military, uh, you, you have many uh, officers and, sol- and lower-ranking soldiers alike who were exposed um, to those political conceptions. And so then if you encounter those ideas and you yourself are taking part in colonialist violence, such as in you know Mozambique, Angola, and um, uh, Portuguese Guinea, you start to find a way to resolve those contradictions, which is what led to these soldiers uh, forming these uh, different enclaves of resistance uh, pockets. And I would add to that, too, knowing a bit about the history, is that you know there's a real blowback always when we go abroad. I think uh, we're going to touch on this in a little bit. A lot of the blowback from um, Afghanistan and Iraq and these wars, the war on terror, as they call it in general, is uh, PTSD, uh, veterans who are not getting the help they need, opiate addiction, poverty, and just horrendous treatment of the people that went over there, uh, got maimed or not, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but the blowback, you know, in, from Vietnam is really real. You know, there was a moment in time politically in this country, they called it Vietnam Syndrome, right, where all of a sudden the United States kind of lost its, I don't know, mental footing as an imperialist power. You know, what's different, I think, perhaps about Portugal, and you put your finger on it, is that the fight against imperialism could be combined with a real fight for this abstraction of democracy. Because if people don't know the history, I won't go too much into it, of the Estado Novo, it was a Francoist, uh, integralist, uh, Catholic, essentially fascist military dictatorship. So, you know, alongside this anti-imperialist fight, there was this real sense that Portugal as a state was backwards in the 1970s as a fascist state, you know, as Spain was under Franco next to it, right? And that, like, it was possible to unite uh, this this anti-war stuff with, you know, this kind of struggle against this antiquated uh, military dictatorship, right, that existed at that time. And I should say, there was a communist movement in the U.S. at this point, but it was weak. It was completely severed from the working class as a whole, or largely so. I mean, we see that with the history of uh, SDS and how they veered off in some really unproductive directions. And yeah, all those bombings really helped weather underground. Well done, you <laughs> bourgeois, rich kid, motherfucking piece of shit. Ultra yeah. Leftist fucking scum. I was trying to be nice about it, I, but I, yes, I that nice, is... Uh, fuck those rich kids. Yeah, fuck them. Rich kids, stay the fuck out. Just go home. But like, yeah. Uh, unless you want to give us your money if you're good yeah, class that's traders. Acceptable. Yeah, we'll yeah. take your we'll money. Take that, yeah. Give us trust, revolutionary trust funds. Oh, that's, that's absolutely. Your that's your uh, $100 a month uh, Patreon tier. You get to be <laughs> a comrade of the revolution and we will no longer dump on you for being a rich kid. We will call it the Engels tier. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, it, it, it seems to me like the communist movement in uh, Portugal at this time was much more 
organized, much more uh, politically coherent, and much more connected to the working class, which, as we all know, is a pretty foundational element if we want uh, communism to win. Right. And, and Portuguese communists at the time were not looking at past movements as an algorithm in which they plug in their, you know, their people and their party. They, ex- uh, they examined their existing material conditions and they work from there, which is for us what we need to do. We can't just adopt you know, point by point what the Portuguese communists were doing at the time. We need to formulate our own movement relevant to the material conditions today. Exactly. Uh, that might sound radical. That might sound crazy. It's a lot easier to take a book, say, written about the highest stage of imperialism 100 years ago and try to graft that onto our conditions today. But it is actually the orthodox Marxist position and probably the right you know, way to take things to actually look at the you know, real movement that abolishes the present state of things instead of going back to some you know, great leader from you know, the communist past. Like the people in Portugal, Portugal did at that time, like we need to have a strong critical analysis of things happening and not just plug in some bullshit from the past, but learn from history at the same time. So were some of these troops uh, radicalized in the course of their uh, service, or were they more radical going into the experience? No, well, I mean, again, a lot of them had exposure to communist and socialist ideas, but a good number of them took part uh, in the uh, occupation of uh, Mozambique, Angola, and so on. They had direct confrontations even with some uh, resistance forces, uh, in those con- uh, in those countries, but much like in Vietnam, how a number of soldiers began to identify more with uh, Vietnamese forces, uh, the Viet Cong and so on, uh, so too in Portugal did a lot of these younger soldiers start to identify with the resistance uh, movements abroad. And things like not getting paid an adequate wage for uh, their service and things like that played another part as well. So in the course of this imperialist war as conscripts or as volunteers, these Portuguese uh, rank and file or NCO or junior officers, uh, you know, encountered these resistance fighters as human beings, uh, something that uh, happened in Vietnam as well, as you said. And uh, I think from the story that you recounted uh, on Eyes Left podcast, folks, everyone listened to it, uh, that was something that you started to see as well, right, is, is starting to see the Iraqis not as their they were often called, I'm sure, as hajis, mm-hmm. but instead as actual human beings that you were, um, I don't know, billeted to go yeah. in and um, harass uh, and potentially kill. So this, I think, brings us to a larger uh, question, right, about, you know, there's your personal story, and uh, I think it is a personally a heroic and a, a beautiful, wonderful story. Um, at least as of right now, you could just go off and, uh, I don't know, start selling like, uh, communism will, will, will win t-shirts and become like a, like bourgeois scum. But I think it's a very inspiring story. So let's kind of look at the factors that, um, you know, push and pull against, uh, the potential that we could be seeing in this cycle of struggles, a kind of new, uh, movement of resistance against, uh, you know, the, the forces of capitalism and imperialism. Yeah, this is something you talked about a lot in your talk at the Socialism Conference that I thought was very interesting because we maybe as outsiders might view the army, the military, as this sort of impenetrable wall of uh, indoctrination and uh, conservatism uh, I know there's a lot of racism floating around. Not to mention, when you and your homeboy were talking on episode one, you guys have your own jargon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's almost impenetrable, too, like any certain. Yeah. yeah. But um, 
I was really inspired by the way you spoke about the potential for class consciousness within the military, especially considering that our quote-unquote all-volunteer army is driven by economically coercive factors and austerity to the point where it's basically an economic draft. Yeah, um, and you're right in uh, the sense that the military is quite impenetrable. It, it is tough to express in words just the drudgery uh, and the alienation you feel as a soldier uh, on any given day due, due to the indoctrination, due to what you actually have to do in your job. But uh, within that uh, horror, you're right. Uh, there is a chance uh, for some larger movement of uh, raising the class consciousness of the troops. Um and primarily, it is going to be the economic coercion that led them to joining the military in the first place. Uh, I'm from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is like a classic Rust Belt city that's just been completely ripped to shreds over the last 40 years. And recruiters were ever prevalent uh, in my school and in uh, my community. And they especially would target, you know, people of color because of, you know, the economic factors uh, they face. And What's interesting, and, and again, another one of the contradictions of the military is I've never been in a school or any type of work environment that was as diverse as the military. Um, in my basic training class alone, we had people from many different uh, walks of life, um, with our one common factor being the majority of us were working class. Right. I was going to say that that diversity reflects the diversity of the U.S. working class, right? yes. because that's the recruits, essentially. Right. Uh, and so in many ways... The military is almost like a, a microcosm of American society at large. Uh, so there is great potential there for organizing troops. The problem is that there has been such uh, a uh, an effort by military uh, high-ranking military officers and uh, politicians to strip the military of its political content and role. Um, Thomas Sankara once said that. And, you know, so many words that one of the most dangerous things you can have is a soldier who thinks they're apolitical and that's a potential criminal. And that's true because in the army, you know, from day one, you're told it's not your place to question orders or to wonder about the larger strategic implications. You execute your task, you shoot, move and communicate. So a lot of, you know, people in the military, they're not really interested in saying they are, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. They're mostly interested in kind of this what they think is a centrist position of saying, fuck the politicians. Mm. I'm just trying to do my job. But when you really start to peel back those layers, you re recognize that your job is supporting a particular class of people, and it is supporting the interests of uh, a class that you have nothing in common with and that doesn't view you as human in any sense. And that kind of matches with uh, what is essentially a class hierarchy within the military, right? So you've got your grunts, which mm -hmm. are like the proles, and then you've got middle management, and then, of course, you have like a ruling caste above that kind of sets the orders for everybody. Right. right? And then even within your own uh, different billets, whether you're combat arms or you're in a support position or if you're in like, you know, the so-called elite units like I was with the Rangers. So it's another interesting contradiction. I was taught, you know, as a young soldier, as a young Ranger to view the rest of the army, the big army, as they called it, with contempt. You don't want to fail out of uh, the Ranger assessment and selection program because then you'll end up as a bullet stopper hmm. in the big army. God. Wow. 
That's like a, a microcosm, too, of I think a lot of the anxiety that working class and quote-unquote middle class professionals you know, feel nowadays of like not wanting to fall down into that lower stratum that you – you know, are trained to have contempt for. Right, right. And, and that's how you make yourself, you know, kind of feel better with what you're doing. You're like, well, this sucks, I hate my life, but at least I'm not, like, in that unit, or I'm not with those guys. So uh, very similar to how racism works in the United States right. in this uh, class system as well. Wow. So many analogies. Uh, um, we love analogies. So, yeah, it's, it's all connected, <laughs> man. So on the topic of the things people do and the ways people cope with the situation they're in when they're in the military, um, I think... On the one hand, it could have a radicalizing effect on you. You just realize the whole thing is really fucked up. Uh, on the other hand, it could have a radicalizing effect in the other direction, right? It could make you very conservative, even reactionary, because if you are out there killing people, right, something you know ex instinctively is wrong, um, like a very common strategy on the part of the army is to dehumanize them and make it seem like it's kind of okay and that leads into all kinds of other reactionary politics and jingoistic attitudes that are reinforced by that and i think sean has a story he would like to tell about a friend of his who unfortunately went in that direction yeah so i didn't do the best in high school uh kind of fucked off went to a lot of punk rock shows skateboarded you know, I don't smoke weed anymore but i may have hit the pipe a couple times so uh you know when i barely squeaked by my father told me to go do what he did when he fucked up in high school and go work in a factory he thought it would scare me enough to like go back to school or something like that so i did and i went and i got a factory job i had a great friend who will remain nameless because we do not dox our friends uh, on this show but uh we'll call him richie uh, he uh and i uh were in the same position he also was working in a factory and and parenthetically, both of the factories we were working in, I was working in a elastomer factory, and he was working in a basically um, ammunition factory. Uh, we uh, both were working for the military industrial complex at that point in time. Uh, about a year or so after that, you know, we were both kind of unhappy with the situation we were in. Uh, my story is that I ended up in community college, but one day he came uh, to me. Uh, to all his friends with a pamphlet from a recruiter, the per type of person you were talking about. And he said, I'm going to join the Navy as a corpsman. And we were all like, this is crazy. Like, we're punks. You know, we were into anarcho-peace punk. We love crass records and shit like that. But, you know, he was in this position where economically uh, he saw this as his only way forward. And so he goes off to the military. He goes through boot camp. He goes to deployment. And he actually gets deployed in uh, Kosovo in our peacekeeping operation over there. In the course of that, I won't go into all the details, but this really sweet, smart young guy ends up as a corpsman who's a basically medical personnel right. having to shoot and kill somebody in combat, which is rare, but it happened. So he comes back, and he's on leave for a week, and he comes home, and he comes to our couch, and he stays on our couch for like, you know, like four weeks. <laughs> and finally, we're like, dude, aren't you supposed to go back to the military? And he's like, oh, I'm so fucked up. I don't think I can go back. I didn't, I didn't go into the military to kill people. I wanted to go to help people. I wanted to get an education. You know, this is my option, and I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Eventually, long story short, as I drove him uh, 36 hours uh, to the um, base that he was at so that he would just be AWOL and not actually uh, a deserter. And I got him back just in the nick of time, and uh, he went back into the military. So he killed somebody in Kosovo and it fucked him up 
Uh, he went to Iraq. He went to Fallujah when he resigned. That fucked him up too. And as the time went on, he did not go left. And this might have been product of the times. It might have just been his own, you know, contingent situation, right? But the way that he dealt with this uh, was through this kind of dehumanization that you were talking about. And he's still—I love him to death. He's one of my best friends, and there, by the grace of God, go I. Because uh, it was an option that I could have taken too, but uh, he's now 18 years in, and he's an E8, about to be an E9, sure. and he's doing great, and uh, he's got a family and a wonderful guy. But he is a super jingoistic Trump supporter. Uh, Jamie feels uncomfortable around him because of his politics. Sometimes he's my boy; I love him forever. But he is the perfect example of somebody who, still to this day, you know, can hold very, very, very chauvinistic, um, racist, and dehumanizing views. But still listen to like Crass and uh, you know Rudimentary Peni and uh, the Clash and all these bands because the, the cognitive dissonance has to be solved in some sort of way. And so instead of breaking left like he did, like you did, I should say, uh, he broke the other way. And uh, he's now the example of what Jamie was talking about is uh, kind of fallen into this whole sort of uh, macho uh, right wing military culture. It's interesting. He could have ended up being the guy at the Mike Ness social distortion show getting flattened. He is a huge... I went to see, actually, Social D with him uh, when we lived in the city together some years back. But yeah, uh, he's a big Social D fan. He might have been the guy that got his ass beat. (laughs) But he could probably fight better than that fat True, true. We had some scraps back in the days. But, you know, a skateboard, a skate deck is a great weapon. That's right. That's all I got to say. I mean, most of the guys I've served with were super into various forms of punk or pop punk. You see a lot of, you know, The Offspring, Bad Religion, which I still love. Or or I should say it's a more common outcome than someone breaking left because there are so many factors in our culture, like in within and outside of the military. Right. There's like the pageantry around the troops and uh, sort of the conflation of supporting the troops with supporting U.S. foreign policy. There's a. There's a large amount of gun culture in right. America. There's um, this pa- this sort of blind patriotism. There are all these pro-war propaganda movies like uh, right. you make it sound American like it's Sniper a, You make it sound like it's a conspiracy, like the Army pays the NFL to do uh, jingoistic pageants uh, at halftime. I, I would never say such a thing. But, uh, it's in the documents. And, and then there's, you know, the role played by... Uh, traditional notions of masculinity too like you're a, you're only a real man mm-hmm. if you are willing to go engage in violence in service of your country and all of your emotions have to be expressed outwardly as anger and violence like what what's what's your take on all that and what can we do about it if anything yeah i mean it's interesting um you mention all of that because a lot of those phenomena are a result of the post-9-11 era. Um, in a culture and in, in film and TV, uh, media in general, prior to 9-11, uh, it wasn't so prevalent, the troop worship we have now. You would find some degree of critique of the military and, you know, to another extent, cops. Um, I just watched this film the other day called Convoy about these truckers, and to see such an explicitly anti-cop film from 19... 19- <laughs> I was like, you would never see that today. But similarly, with the military, uh, the post-9-11 era really broke everyone's brain and kind of established a civic religion of patriotism. Uh, so every film you watch, whether it's a superhero movie or whatever, you're going to have this aspect of the military, the U.S. military being the good guys. Um, but... And, 
the framework or the the mindset of a young soldier, well, it's, that's ingrained in you. And then when you watch these uh, these films or you uh, talk with uh, other people or see politicians, you know, bloviating about how great you are, it reinforces that mentality. You know, from day one of being a troop, you're you're taught how to use a rifle, and that rifle is an extension of yourself, and that gives you a rush of sorts because you now are trained to employ. Uh, and execute violence on other human beings. You are able to deal out death um, to another person. Not only able to, but you're actually licensed to and, ca- and right, right, and told you kill to. with impunity right. uh, as a as a soldier. And so that that rifle serving as, as essentially as a, like a reification of that that masculine impulse is very intoxicating, especially for you know an 18, 19 year old boy. Uh, but even you know women in the uh, in the military as well. Because uh, and not only do you have to adopt uh, the masculine persona as a male soldier, but I always say that you really cannot uh, exist as someone who's f- feminine presenting in the military because you'll be deemed as someone who's not you know, embodying the warrior caste mythology or uh, persona. And, and anything feminine is, of course, foreign, and, and you need to suppress it within yourself, whether you're you know, uh, a male or a female. Uh, so th- there's that aspect um, – of it too, but in general, uh, I think it does come back to the idea of killing. Uh, whether you are support or whether you are on the front lines as an infantryman, uh, the military's role is to kill other human beings. And when you experience that, either indirectly, directly, or somewhere in between, it makes you feel like you have access to a certain power or understanding of the human experience that other people cannot relate to. And from there, that's why you have some people who, even if they see the true nature of combat and war, it's too difficult to break in a way that would cause them to question their own role in that violence. And so you get some people who double down, such as Richie or plenty of others. Sure. And I should say that uh, that sort of uh, toughness or masculinity is... I've seen army recruitment videos directed at women where that's portrayed as a kind of feminism, Mm. you know, or in that like fucking shittiest Katy Perry video Mm. even Mm. that just reads like a propaganda video for the army. It's like, yas, (laughs) queen. Diversity and I'm going to get over my breakup by cutting off my hair like a G.I. Jane and going overseas (laughs) and killing people like what? Well, it, and, and in that sense, it kind of makes sense that she was like all in for Hillary, right? Because Hillary was like right. the ultimate expression of yeah, that. Absolutely. It's true. I also wanted to talk about um, the things that happen when people come home from the war and try to reintegrate into some sort of normal civilian life. Because Such as it is. I know that it can be really hard for people. I know that troops don't. People don't get treated the way they should be by the government or by the underfunded VA. And, you know, we've got austerity still Mm -hmm. as just a general policy in America. Um, People deal with mental health problems. They don't have the framework. They don't have the support to deal with problems like addiction and depression and PTSD. And the whole time, you know, they've been taught that the manly thing to do is just to suppress it. So that's got to 
play a role as well. And I would just branch off of what Jamie says. You know, it's hard enough to integrate into, you know, neoliberal capitalist hell world not facing uh, PTSD and not having the burden of having been part of this imperial death machine. So we can only imagine, you know, what it's like to have that burden, but then also try and live a quote unquote normal life under capitalism. Yeah. Um, and a big element uh, of that, again, is. You experience a certain rush with the high-intensity lifestyle of being in the military, in particular for combat arms folks. But in general, if you've been in the military, there are certain experiences you encounter that are tough to replicate in the civilian life. And so in order to uh, replicate that feeling again, a lot of folks turn to various forms of drugs or uh, alcohol abuse and and the military itself. Uh, alcoholism, alcoholism is an integral part uh, of the culture. And even the manner in which you go out and you drink and you party in the military is, is very much distinct from how folks do it in the civilian world. So in many cases, you come back from being in the military and you're used to operating in a high-intensity environment where people don't even need to talk to communicate to know where you need to be. And you know, if you're going on a mission to raid a house or a village or something like that, uh, you deploy for so many months, you come back, and then you, you rage with your buddies, and you go you know, execute a training uh, cycle, and, and you do all these different things. It's that like you're, a built-in bender sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, in many ways. That's a great way of putting it. Um, but then when you're done with it all and you get out, you start to maybe kind of zoom out a little bit, and you're like, wait, what the fuck was I just doing for the past two to three years of my life? Uh, and because you really don't have an adequate way of expressing the trauma – and you were taught to bury it and suppress it, it manifests itself in other forms of, and many times, domestic violence or lashing out on, on people in public, as, as we've seen a number of times, or, again, any number of ways. Uh, but the military is woefully ill-equipped to deal with veterans uh, who have experienced trauma and, and finding a way to get them adequate treatment. I was pretty horrified uh, in the part of the uh, Vietnam documentary that we watched when he talks about the donut bellies, which are like cute girls that they sent over to like play trivia games with the troops i'm like oh that's nice and then the epilogue to that is uh one donut belly was uh killed by a grenade shortly after and another was actually stabbed by the troops themselves and i was like jesus christ and like i know that's kind of just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the violence and the sexual violence that has occurred in different parts of the world at different points in time. I mean, you brought up the, uh, I'm going to pronounce this the wrong. The Mahmoudia yeah. massacre. Yeah, where um, uh, just a horrific, horrific event in um, Iraq where a uh, whole a family. A 14-year-old Iraqi girl. Yeah. I don't know the story. Raped and murdered. Oh, yeah, Jesus. But that's just. But it's interesting. In that case, again, the it was the actual rape and the murder was carried out by um, a number of enlisted uh, soldiers, um, but they were the only ones who really faced any substantive justice on the matter. Uh, the the high-ranking officers who were in charge of that operational environment and uh, presided over these killings, none of them faced any uh, charges. There's a great book called Black Hearts. Um, it's kind of a trope within the military community because it's recommended by dipshit officers who make you read it so that you enforce grooming standards on your men. But the, the main thrust of it uh, is that none of these commanders were conducting proper battlefield circulation. You have a war crime like this happen. But 
and the book kind of fails in this regard too, but no war crime happens at the tactical level nor at the operational. It happens at the strategic level at the top. So you mentioned uh, you know, the violence against women in Vietnam. Everyone knows about the My Lai massacre. We're talking about the Mahmoudia massacre right now. But the point is, is that this is the normal state of affairs. And unfortunately, these are only the particular cases we know about. But the amount of uh, incidents like this are, are con con uh, commonplace. And the generals and, and the higher-ranking officers who directly set the conditions that result in these actions happening never had to face the music for them. So to bring that, uh, I think, very, very, very well-put-together analysis uh, down to the, to the you know, real-world level, if you have a, a strategy of a counterinsurgency campaign, let's say in a place like Iraq, and it involves kicking down the doors of, like, regular ass people in cities uh, and towns in Iraq or elsewhere and invading their privacy and harassing them in that sort of way. You're saying that's like systemically that violence is already there. It is, it is prone to happen and that is part of the strategy. And so you can't, it, this, uh, this attempt to disown it because there's a couple bad apples is complete bad faith and total diversion. Absolutely. I, again, I can't emphasize that you have figures, whether it's, Petraeus, McChrystal, any of them, they themselves embody the mentality of dominating and inflicting violence on people who are beneath you, who aren't part of this warrior caste that you represent, and they directly influence the officers below them and then the officers below them and then the enlisted soldiers who carry out these actions. So, so in that sense, it should not be surprising at all when people come home and beat their wives or just continue the cycle of violence that has been taught to them and like actually sent to them as orders. Right? Uh, uh, it's not surprising whatsoever because that type of behavior is, is normalized and accepted in, in military culture. And I just got to say, just as a, a broad point right here, like if you're the kind of person out there that is going to uh, call like a rank and file grunt a baby killer or you're going to shame them in public because of the situation that they were in, um, regardless of the circumstance, um, you can go fuck yourself because um, these are people that are put under very extreme conditions. Uh, this as Jamie pointed out, conception of all volunteer army is kind of bullshit when you look at the economic conditions uh, that bring rise to this. And um, these troops, whether they do horrific things or just the normal things that happen in the military, are by and large working class people. And whether they're abroad or whether they're at home, they are potential comrades. You cannot write them off. They are part of us. And hopefully, and I think that Spencer, you're going to talk a bit about this, Hopefully they can be a very important and crucial part in trying to dismantle and destroy these structures of imperialism and capitalism that are doing so much damage right now in the world. And if we don't stop now, could potentially, I don't know, destroy the entire human race. Yeah. Um, and so to get into that um, a very important question, I want to preface it by saying there is nothing that the capitalist class loves more than the idea that the military is an all-volunteer force because it plays directly into the neoliberal ideology of everyone makes their own decisions and that's the result of their financial situation they're in. You just got to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. There's ways to get out of a poor situation. It's all an individual effort and there's no systemic quality to it. So whenever you try to you know, peddle that narrative, it plays directly into the hands of the ruling class. But 
again, we surrender the organizing efforts to reach out to military personnel uh, at our own peril, quite frankly, because there are no people better equipped to speak to the Kafka-esque lifestyle of being a soldier than those who have directly participated in it forever how short or long they might have done it. Um, and in terms of an authentic internationalist socialist perspective, I mean, any socialist movement worth its salt over the past 100, 200 years has had a large component of disaffected military veterans who recognized their complicity and role in imperialist violence and joined up with the masses to overturn uh, the conditions which cause uh, such things to occur. Now, of course, there's no question that the military of the United States of America in 2018 is vastly different from the Portuguese army of the early 70s, from the Russian Imperial Army of the early 20th century, but there are still direct parallels and there are still common features to the capitalist mode of production uh, that exists today. And if you agree with Marx's overall analysis of capitalism, then that extends to, to the rule of the military and uh, capitalist violence as well. Hell yeah. Well, maybe this belongs in the prior section, but this just popped into my head. Like, are there good things about the military that we should try to replicate as socialists? Because it sounds to me like part of the distress when people come home and have to live in neoliberal hell world mm -hmm. is there are some things about the military that are actually fairly socialist, right? We, they have a sense of community mm -hmm. and uh, belonging and like all for one and one for all. They have uh, camaraderie comes from a military perspective. Indeed. Right? Three a meals comrade. a day. Yeah. They have a place to sleep. They have a lot of things that, you know, neoliberal society doesn't provide. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the military runs on communist principles, yeah, but it propagandizes <laughs> its members against them yeah. very early on. So it's the beautiful type of contradiction uh, that the United States military loves to get itself into because the military could not function without there being some degree of community or uh, common objective uh, and effort. So yes, absolutely, the idea of having a group or a collective who's operating in tandem with one another towards a, a common effort is very important uh, for the left uh, to grapple with and understand that Maybe, you know, the the skills a soldier brings to the table is not just being able to fire a gun or kill someone, but know how to organize and work as a member of a team effectively and knowing how to navigate conflicting personalities and perspectives while still having a common uh, goal and uh, a common operating picture with which we can all rally around. So the, the trick w would then be to try to, um, to take those positive aspects and I think, as you said before, uh, try to try to uh, I guess denude them of of this jingoistic um, you know neoliberal uh, violent um, I don't know underpinning of it right and, uh, and and try to kind of move it to another phase to do a phase change and to try to use that in order to fight the ruling class instead of say go fight a bunch of brown peasants in a right. field somewhere and again and I spoke to the communist principles of you know working together from each according to their ability each according to their need. Um, but you have that in tandem with a brutal, brutally hierarchical rank structure, um, vast differences in pay uh, and benefits for those who are, you know, higher ranking officers versus lower enlisted. And, and that's where, you know, the, the resolution of the contradictions comes into play. And again, it's tied to a larger socialist movement. 
So one of the most uh, exciting, shall we say, tantalizing parts of your talk at the Socialism Conference was where you said that you believe that the U.S. military can be defeated in the fight for global proletarian revolution. And that's a really important and exciting and kind of taboo question for leftists today because, you know, talking about revolution in a direct way in the U.S. It definitely will get you on a list somewhere. But I think it's a really important thing that leftists need to think about um, as more than just an abstraction. Like how, like, like first, do you think that a uh, revolution is possible here in the heart of empire? Uh, and, and how do you think we're going to win? Is it just by getting everyone to desert the army and gain class consciousness? Or is there more to it than that? So to answer your first question, I do think that not only is revolution possible in the heart of empire, but it's absolutely necessary for there to be a successful internationalist socialist revolution. Hell um, yeah. When I say that the U.S. military can be defeated, I'm not just trying to be provocative. I'm trying to emphasize that although it might seem daunting to engage the United States military in a pitch battle of sorts, there are other elements that make up the military as an institution and as a structure wherein they can be affected and utilized to tear the military down uh, piece by piece. Um, to invoke Gramsci once again, he has this idea of revolution constituting two features. You have the war of position and the war of maneuver. Now, the war of maneuver is a direct action struggle as we know it, whether it's you know actually a kinetic engagement or more of like a, a, a work stoppage or a strike. But the war of position is the more uh, molecular aspect of it, like we've discussed in this show, wherein you're reformulating concepts and ideas and engaging with people and organizing them to recognize that there is another way. The war of position is what is the necessary foothold to secure in any revolutionary movement for it to be uh, successful uh, in the long term. And so whether it's you're organizing various splinters within the military, you're engaging in different anti-imperialist projects to bring soldiers into the fold, all of them play a larger part uh, and creating a collective consensus that can overturn uh, the military, military structure, such as it is. Uh, the military itself is also an inherently contradictory en uh, entity, which is uh, destroying itself from within. Um, whether it's the overabundance of spending on failed projects like the F-35, or just the endless amount of deployments of troops to places like Afghanistan and Iraq, it it's... Lenin was right in saying that, you know, the capitalists will sell us the ropes from which we will hang them. Uh, the military cannot sustain the effort it is currently putting out uh, across the world. When you have over 800 military bases worldwide, that's going to eventually have to be answered, uh, and it's probably going to look like a form of collapse. So when I say the military can be defeated, what I mean is that we need to organize alongside those who are in the military and are willing to challenge it directly and reach out to those who might be questioning it and express to them, in keeping with this idea of the war of position, that there is another way forward, that there is a way to put a stop to ending the war, which is more than just saying, hey, it's over, we're bringing troops home. No, 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 it's about changing our very foundational uh, features of the society we live in. And from that, if we secure a foothold in the war of position, I think we can move into more of a direct war of maneuver 
and see the military collapse uh, before our eyes. Hell yeah. Hell so fucking yeah. I think uh, we'd like to end every episode with a bit of a call to arms, so to speak. Uh, sometimes it's more uh, literal than others. Uh, so I guess maybe I'd like you to play us out by answering uh, one final question, and that is, do you really think that communism will win? Communism will win. Communism is necessary. Communism will win. And I have no doubt in my mind that in our lifetimes we're going to see that happen. Hell yeah. Hell fucking yeah.